Four unpublished photographs, $1,000. Anything considered unusual or unique goes for a great deal more. An old piece of tape recording done when the Beatles were amateurs was sold in 1994 for $100,000, 78,500 pounds. In 1995, a handwritten version of one of their songs went for $200,000, 160,000 pounds. All reasonable investments, presumably, judging by the way prices for Beatles memorabilia have soared in the last ten years. In 1995, Michael Jackson sold the copyright of some 250 Beatles songs, the original Northern Songs collection, to Sony for $95 million, which was more than double what he had paid for them ten years earlier. Once again, Paul missed out and is still, alas for him, in the position of having to pay royalties if he wants to record songs which he wrote. Proof of their status can be seen in other non-monetary terms. The National Trust in England, which normally cares for historic homes of artistic, architectural, or environmental merit, paid £50,000 in 1995 for 20 Forthland Road, Allerton, Liverpool, a cheap and extremely basic former council house. I grew up in an identical house, so I am pleased to know that a monument to my social background will be preserved forever, but I know it is not its architectural pretensions that will make the National Trust care for it. It just happens to have been lived in for nine years by the young Paul McCartney. If you visit the British Museum in London, you will also witness another sign that the Beatles have entered our national heritage. Turn right and head for the British Library's Manuscripts Department. Beside glass-topped tables displaying the works of Shakespeare, Dickens, Wordsworth, Keats, and other assorted and long-dead great figures, you will see a table containing ten original Beatles songs in their own fair handwriting. On most days, the largest crowd in the room is around that table. They are on permanent loan from a certain person, and according to this certain person's will, which he has recently done, they eventually will go to the nation. Okay, it's me. The reason for all this reverence, which would have struck most people as risible back in 1968, is simple. Their music. Of course, the Beatles had cultural and social, geographic and economic influences, but what we remember are the songs. They were recognized as memorable, almost from day one. It took the billions a little longer, but now it is universally accepted that the Beatles gave us almost 200 popular songs, which will be remembered as long as the world has any breath left to hum the tunes. The reason for this new edition is also fairly simple. The last revised edition, back in 1985, finally sold out in 1986, thanks to the Beatles anthology, the biggest, most ambitious, and in some ways the most surprising of all the Beatles events and anniversaries since they parted in 1970. Most Beatles fans knew that some sort of official compilation in pictures and music sanctioned by the Beatles themselves and produced by their own company, Apple Corps, was on the stocks. Had been for decades, that was the problem. Neil Aspinall, their former roadie, now head of Apple, had had it in his mind since 1970 to somehow tell their story, using their own words, music, and images. Great research had been done to collect together old material. Small advances were made, then lengthy retreats. The basic problem was securing the consent and agreement of all four elements, all at the same time. Paul, Ringo, George, and John, and then after his death, Yoko, were not always, let us say, the bestest of friends, legally or otherwise. For many years they did not have the same needs and desires, aims and interests. In 1994 it all came together. It started as basically a simple idea, to assemble their own story. 
but somehow it expanded and exploded, sending off fissions and particles all over the place. The result, if you happened to be a Beatles fan, was a feast. Not just a collection, more a cornucopia. First out was the music. Three double CDs appeared which contained hitherto unknown or unheard early songs, or early versions of known songs and conversations. The first double CD, Anthology 1, came out in November 1995, Anthology 2 and 3 in 1996. There were also two singles taken from the CDs, Free as a Bird and Real Love. These were presented as the first Beatles songs for 25 years, in that all four Beatles were heard singing and playing together on a new song. Free as a Bird had been originally recorded by John at home in New York in 1977, purely in demo form, but never worked on or completed. By using modern techniques and some imaginative production, Paul, George, and Ringo helped John finish it. We took the attitude that John had gone on holiday, saying, I finished all the tracks except this one, but I leave you guys to finish it off, Paul was quoted as saying. Once we agreed to take that attitude, it gave us a lot of freedom. Second came a major TV series, which appeared as six programs in Great Britain and three in the United States, later coming out as eight 75-minute videos. There was also a radio series and a book. About the only thing missing was an ice show. There was considerable advance excitement and intense competition for rights. The TV series was sold in 100 different countries, but in the end it was not quite as successful as some had expected. In the United States, Part 1 was watched by 48 million people, but the number dropped to 25 million for Part 3. In the United Kingdom, 14 million watched Part 1, but only 2.9 million watched Part 6. Scheduling might have had something to do with this, as the last show was on New Year's Eve, but all the same, the viewing figures were disappointing. The records did much better. In the United States, the first CD sold almost a million copies in the first week and went to the top of the album charts. In the United Kingdom, the single was expected to be number one, but was just beaten by Michael Jackson. The expectations and the hype did rather get out of hand. How could a song only half-written be as good or as original or cause the same excitement as the original songs when they first appeared to thrill us all in the 60s? How could yet another run-through of a familiar story, even with a few unseen and archaic clips, tell us anything we didn't already know? The press, at least in England, having helped to create a lot of the hype in the first place, were rather critical and sneering once the Beatles anthologies started appearing. But then that is often the way. Blow them up, then blow them down. In February 1964, when the Beatles first appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show, 73 million people watched. By comparison, the figure of 48 million for the first part of the anthology on ABC in November 1995 would seem quite a drop. But you have to realize how TV viewing and musical habits have changed and splintered in 30 years, and how no one under the age of 30 could possibly have remembered the Beatles as a live group. They were watching history. Getting 48 million to tune in for a slice of modern history, which had no revelations to impart, was a considerable achievement. The real audience, and the real satisfaction, was among true Beatles fans. They are more than willing to see and hear the same old stuff once again, just for the chance of some small illuminations, some marginal explanation, some minor variations. The discovery of an early version of a Shakespeare sonnet would still be an event, however boring or minor the sonnet. The cynics naturally suggested the surviving Beatles did it for money. 
Well, of course they did. No argument there. They are not a charity. Anthology generated many millions of dollars around the world. One of the beneficiaries was Pete Best, the forgotten and ignored ex-Beatle. Because his drumming was featured on some of the early tracks, his royalty payments from Anthology should make him well off for the rest of his life. However, if the Beatles themselves had been primarily motivated by money, they could have done something similar many years ago. So what was the real reason? Paul is arguably the richest musician in the world. It is true Ringo's post-Beatles musical career has not been extensive, and it is true George had found himself in some legal and financial problems with handmade films, but their poverty is only comparative. Forbes magazine estimated that in 1995, the total income for the Beatles themselves, from their life as Beatles, was $130 million. Roughly half of that came from advanced sales of anthology, but even so, their annual income is still enormous and will remain so. If George and Ringo are hard up in comparison with Paul, all it means is that they are down to their last $20 million. In 1996, George and his wife Olivia contributed around a million pounds to a Romanian children's charity, which would indicate they are far from on the breadline. The Beatles have no need for the money, Derek Taylor told me. He was their press spokesman back in the 60s and returned in 1995 to work on anthology. But in my experience, people with a lot of money seldom tend to say no to more. I believe the explanation why Anthology came out when it did was the simple and obvious one. Because for once, all four elements were in agreement to work on the same project at the same time. And that's the interesting part. When I was researching and writing this book back in the 60s, George was by far the hardest to get to sit down and talk about being a Beatle. John was hard for several reasons, but had no antipathy to Beatleness. Paul and Ringo, on the whole, enjoyed it. George was not just bored by Beatle talk, but in a way resented it. I asked to be successful. I never asked to be famous. He came out with this remark and variations on it for many years. While the others at various times were willing to discuss the possibilities of some sort of reunion, George always refused, as if in denial as if trying to wipe out the fact he had ever been a beetle, an unwelcome load which he feared would pursue him through life, clouding and cluttering up all the other things he wanted to do. As far as I'm concerned, there won't be a Beatles reunion as long as John remains dead. That was George in 1989. But then with age, his attitude began to change. He slowly realized he was fighting against a load which would never go away. And was it such a load anyway? By the time he had reached the age of 50, in February 1993, he was beginning to realize something remarkable had happened to him all those years ago. At 15, he was a little boy riding around Liverpool on his bike, not knowing where he was going in life. Five years later, he was one of the best-known people on the planet. How had it all happened? By the age of 50, George had become intrigued by this person he used to be, as if seeing himself through a telescope or taking a bird's-eye view of some unusual events in which he had been involved a long time ago. At the age of 50, he found the Beatles interesting. Seeing him talking and smiling and reminiscing was, for me, one of the most enjoyable parts of the TV series. We always knew, of course, that the Beatles were interesting, whether or not the Beatles themselves were interested. The Beatles will just go on and on, said George when Anthology came out. On those records and films and videos and books or whatever, and in people's memories and minds, because it's become its own thing now. The Beatles, I think, exist without us. 
This book in 1968 tried to capture them as they were. While they were still doing it, observing them composing and creating as well as living and breathing, it was the authorized biography of the Beatles, the only one there ever was. I was probably too close to see things clearly, but on the other hand, what I got was them at first hand. The original book is lurking within this volume, sandwiched between extensive afterwards and hindsights I wrote in 1985 when the book was first properly updated, and I tried to describe some of the things I didn't or couldn't describe at the time. I am amused, and sometimes not so amused, to see quotes, anecdotes, and incidents which I got directly from the people concerned, many of them now dead, being presented as if the writer himself had dug them out. But what else can they do? John is long dead. The Beatles, as we all now agree, are history. Hunter Davies, London, 1996 Introduction to the 1985 edition The Beatle I first met was Paul in September 1966. It was a great year, 1966. In July, England won the World Cup at Wembley, England's first world soccer success. I sold the film rights of my first novel, which had come out the previous year, to United Artists, and I was commissioned by BBC TV to write a Wednesday play. In October 1966, there was the world premiere of Georgie Girl, a film written by my wife from her own novel. It was Annus Mirabilis in the Davies household. My full-time job was as a journalist on the Sunday Times of London, where I was writing the Atticus column. I had been on the staff since 1960, though for the first three years I had beavered away without once getting my name in the paper. It is hard to believe it now, but in those days bylines were infrequent, and the Sunday Times was a very traditional newspaper. Atticus, the newspaper's gossip column, had always been equally old-fashioned, devoting itself to news about bishops, gentlemen's clubs, ambassadors. As a working-class lad from the north who had grown up in a council house, gone to the local grammar school and then a provincial university, I had neither the background, the accent, nor the interests of the accepted Atticus columnists. They had tended to be old Etonians, Oxbridge types, south of England gentlemen, who actually did know bishops and went to the best clubs. Some had also been very distinguished. Ian Fleming had only recently given up Atticus, and before him previous incumbents had included writers like Sir Sacheverell Sitwell. But a funny thing happened to British life in the mid-1960s, just as in the Atticus column, out in the world at large, traditional roles and rules were being upset, and sometimes completely reversed. When I had been in the running to take over the Atticus column, there had been another likely contender, ex-Eton and Oxford.